Let's try again. Maybe this one. Good morning, church. It's great to be back with you. I was able to uh, be here several weeks ago earlier in the summer. It was, it was a great blessing, and I was delighted when, through Phil Ware, uh, the elders of this church invited me to come and be with you again as Phil's away, and uh, it's such a blessing to be in Longview. Uh, I brought my wife and son back this time so that they could meet you and, and see Longview. It's their first time to visit Longview, and we're just delighted to be with you and worship with you and thankful for God's work in and through this church. As I was preparing to be here this week, in some email correspondence, um, I heard this line, have you met Tony? (laughs) And then when I showed up this morning uh, and met with the elders, I heard it again, and when I made my way in here, I heard it again, have you met Tony? Tony, I can tell you, they are really excited that you're here and blessed and And uh, I would put it this way, Tony, they see your presence here as a part of God's work and God's movement in this church. And so, man, it's great to meet you and thankful for your gifts and leading uh, and blessing this church and its worship. Uh, I'd like for us to begin this morning our time listening for God's voice, God's living, active word in our presence um, by hearing the text from Joshua 20 this morning. Joshua 20. I'd like for us to share in the reading of that text, and then I'd like for us to give thanks to God for the reading of His Word and to really immerse our time together over the next uh, uh, several minutes in prayer, to bathe this time in prayer. So, this is Joshua 20. I'm going to read the first six verses uh, this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Say to the Israelites, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person without intent or by mistake may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. The slayer shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain the case to the elders of that city. Then the fugitive shall be taken into the city and given a place and shall remain with them. Then the fugitive shall be taken into the city and given a place and shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood is in pursuit, they shall not give up the slayer because the neighbor was killed by mistake, there having been no enmity between them before. The slayer shall remain in that city until there is a trial before the congregation, until the death of the one who is high priest at the time, then the slayer may return home to the town in which the deed was done." Well, that's interesting. Let's listen closely. Let's give thanks for the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me now? Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We receive it as a gift and a grace. We receive it as your very presence among us, your word, living and active. And we pray that as your word and your spirit is among us that 
You will shape not only our minds, but our hearts, that you will form us as your people, that we will walk in your ways. So bless the reading of your word and bless us as we struggle to hear it and know it for our own life in our own time and place. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed them through Moses. Refuge. I don't know about you, but there's something about that word that resonates deeply within me. I love the sound of it. I love the sense of it. I love what it evokes in my mind. I love the idea of it. Refuge. Maybe it's because uh, I remember this moment. This was... um, in April, in April of 1979, in fact, I can tell you the exact day, April the 10th, 1979, I was 10 years old. You can all do the math now and figure out how old I am. I grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas, here in, uh, in North Texas, um, and was accustomed, sort of routinely, of hearing the tornado sirens alert because they tested them, because they knew they might need them. And so on that particular evening, my brother, two years younger than I, were out in the front yard playing around outside one spring evening. And the clouds were getting dark, but they always got dark. And then the sirens went off, but we heard the sirens go off routinely. We didn't stop to think that they usually don't go off in the evening on a Tuesday, and I remember my mom came outdoors, she ran out of the house, and she said, boys, get in the house. In that tone, that is not the usual mom tone, it is the, we're not messing around boys tone, you need to get in the house. And so we ran into the house, like mom said, and when we came in through the front doors into the living room, she said, I want you to go sit at the end of the hallway. And so we went to the end of the hallway, and she went into the living room, and she and my dad took the cushions off the sofa, and they scurried down the hallway to where we were, and they tucked the cushions in on either side of us. And we sat there, and I could hear the TV on in the background, mom and dad in the living room where the TV was, and my brother was whining, I'm hungry. And I remember my mom ran into the kitchen and she grabbed a bag of Oreo cookies and she flung them down the hallway at us. (laughs) Here! Like, hey, that was easy. So we're sitting at the end of the hallway, these two boys, eight and ten years old, cushions tucked around us, sirens going off, the sound of the TV eating Oreos. And in the next moment, my mom and dad come down the hallway, tuck into my brother's bedroom, grab the mattress off of his bed, drag it into the hallway, towards us at the end of the hallway. We're sitting with our backs to the wall. They kneel down facing us, pull the mattress over them and hold it, and the storm hits. Any of you ever, uh, tornado survivors, anyone, a few? 
man, if you're in that moment, you don't forget it. What does it sound like? Where are my people? What does it sound like? Sounds like a freight train right through the middle of your living room. I'd heard that before, but until you experience it, it really does. It sounds like a freight train. And I could hear glass breaking and all I knew to imagine in my mind, the only thing I knew about living through tornadoes was what I had seen in The Wizard of Oz. And in The Wizard of Oz, the house is flying up in the air and spinning around. And so I kind of thought, well, that's what's happening. In any moment, we're going to drop down who knows where. I remember all that. I remember the eye of the storm when it got still and I thought, well, maybe it's clear and, and mom and dad saying, no, 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 it's the eye. Sit still. I remember all that. i tell you what I remember most. I remember my dad praying. I had heard my dad pray literally hundreds of times. My dad prayed when we sat down to eat. My dad prayed at church. My dad prayed in Bible class. I had heard my dad pray hundreds of times, but I had never heard my dad pray like that. You know what he prayed? He prayed, God, have mercy on us. He prayed, God, spare my family. He prayed, God, forgive us. He prayed that kind of prayer that only comes from a deep longing for mercy and protection and refuge. I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget that prayer. We climbed out from under that mattress and our house was still intact. Not everyone else's was. And certainly, not everyone else's lives were intact. There was glass broken in the living room. My mom said, Stephen, get the vacuum. I said, Mom, there's no electricity. I was a bright 10-year-old. She said, oh, your life turned all upside down. You know, you don't have to survive a tornado for that longing to be deep within you, do you? Have your life turned upside down to be in a moment, maybe in a moment where you're not sure that life is ever going to be ordered the way it was before. Maybe it's the phone call from the doctor's office with the results of the test. Maybe it's the fracture of a relationship that's been under such stress and cracked in so many places that there's this final moment of breach, of break, where you're not sure that things are ever going to be the same again. And your prayer is that prayer, God have mercy, God protect, God be refuge, because I'm not sure If you are human, and as I look around the room, it appears that we all are, you know that we all long for a place like that. So when we reach this place in the story, 
in the journey we've been taking with Israel as they've moved into a place uh, of promise, a place of provision, a place of abundance, a new future with life and with hope. And there are these instructions. Now, Joshua, hear this. When you move into this place, don't forget about the cities of refuge. I'm intrigued. What were they? And why? Uh, It's interesting to me, these cities of refuge among the people of God. Because it's pretty clear that they're planned for. That they're planned for in a way that's intended to imprint something on the life of the people of God. They receive these instructions to order their life uh, by these cities of refuge. Actually, it was back in Deuteronomy. It's in the code in Deuteronomy that as they are moving forward and moving into a place that they're to set up these cities of refuge, it names in Deuteronomy three of these cities of refuge. Gives specific instructions about where they're to be located and what they're to be for. There's no lack of clarity about why they exist and why they're important and how they're to be arranged. It's first given as, the, as you move into these places and you begin to settle into these places, don't forget to set up the cities of refuge in Deuteronomy. There are three of them. And there's the provision that then when you begin to move forward and your territory expands, which is what's happening in Joshua, their territory is expanding you're to set up additional cities of refuge. Joshua 20, later in the chapter, after that portion that we read a moment ago, names them. There are six of these cities of refuge. It's about the geography. It's, there's sort of a practical reason for that. We want, you, we want those who need them to be able to reach them and find safe harbor. And so ever so often, as your territory expands, part of your expansion strategy is set up, designate one of these cities as a city of refuge. It makes sense, doesn't it? And these cities are, like many ancient cities, walled cities. They're walled cities. Um, And they're intended to to meet this purpose and this function. There's a practical reason that they're set up from three cities, then as you expand, six cities. But it's also because they are a living reminder among them. They are sanctuary cities. And if, if they are within geographical proximity to where the people of God are as their territory expands, it is a reminder of them of something important about who they are and about who God is. So I would say that, these, that refuge orders their life, and it orders their life in the story of God. The designation of these cities of refuge is written into the priestly code, alongside other instructions. You know, about keeping this festival and this feast and doing it in this way. And uh, very precise instructions about when you're supposed to do it on the such and such day of the such and such month and all of those kinds of things. That's the way the priestly code functions. Instruction like this. 
They're specific. It's a do this in this kind of way at this time kind of thing. These instructions in the Jewish law are called halakha. That's the law. It's the Jewish law. Halakha. Interesting thing in the priestly code and in the Jewish law is that you never find the instruction, halakha, apart from its deeper meaning embedded in the story of God, and that is called Haggadah. Halakha, the law, what you're supposed to do, is never found in the Hebrew Scripture apart from Haggadah, the story of, of God. The what you're supposed to do is never disconnected from the why you're supposed to do it, which I know is bad news for you parents who are fond of saying, just do it because I told you so. In Hebrew Scripture, you always get the why I'm telling you to do this thing. You get the halakha, do this, with the Haggadah, because remember what happened to you and who God is. Let me give you a couple of quick examples here. The most familiar one. Now, when you leave Egypt and you go forth from this place, I want you to observe this meal. I want you to eat it in a certain way. I want you to eat bread that is unleavened. Why? Not just because I want to see if you can pay attention and follow instructions, but because when you up and left Egypt, you left in haste. There was no time for the bread to rise. So you eat this meal in this way because it's connected to the story of what happened to you and what God did in deliverance of you, right? Yeah, it's you're familiar with this. I want you to eat it with your cloak tucked in. Now, I don't know about you, but in the churches I came up in, we made a big deal out of eating unleavened bread, but nobody ever got up and preached a sermon about tucking your shirt in while you eat communion. I, I'm saying that sort of playfully. You're wondering if you should take that serious or not. But, but it, it did, right? Why? Why do you want us to tuck our cloak in, to tuck our shirt in when we eat the meal? Because remember, you left in haste. God delivered you, and you moved out in faith into a new future. So do this in this kind of way because it's connected to the story, right, of what happened to you and what God did. That's an example. Another example, really, really quick second example. This one's from Leviticus 19. Now I'm just going to share with you the instruction in the law in Leviticus. When you reap, because they're an um, agricultural-based society, right? And, and they're settling in a land, and now they're able to, as not a nomadic people, but a settled people, to begin to raise their own crops. That's what happens when you're no longer nomads. They're raising their own crops and God is prospering you and your blessing in your crops, when you reap your crops, do not reap to the edges. Do you know this instruction? You know, go out, take your crops, but when you get to the edge, leave some around the edge. Or, when you reap your fields or your vineyards, do not pass through a second time, picking up that which you missed on the first pass. Leave it there. It makes um, no business sense. You're leaving a lot of the margin on the ground or at the edge. But God says, 
This is what I want you to do. Do not reap to the, to the edges. Do not pass a second time through and, and glean more. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Some translations say alien. Leave them for the poor and the alien. The foreigner, the alien living among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. Why? Why? Why do the people of God get this specific instruction about how they order their life and conduct their business? Leviticus 19 says, For you were foreigners in Egypt. Remember the story? Remember the story of your experience, the story of God's presence, the story is connected to the instruction. And this business about creating cities of refuge is connected to their story as well. Set these cities up because you are those to whom God has shown great mercy and refuge. Be a people who order your life, who structure your life as a people of refuge and mercy. The instruction for the cities of refuge orders their life in the story of God and it orders their life in the character of God. You know how many times this theme shows up in the Psalms? Oh Lord, you are my refuge. You are my hiding place. I just made a quick pass. This may not be accurate, but at least 25 times you find this embedded in the Psalms. It comes back. If, if the Psalms are the hymn book for the worship of the people of God, they are singing this song about who God is. You are my refuge. You are my hiding place. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. You remember that one. Remember, that's who God is. You are my refuge, a strong tower. The cities of refuge hold together God's desire to provide mercy and refuge, and at the same time, God's desire for justice. Did you hear that in the reading of the text? They're wrestling with this idea of just retribution and God's mercy. And the cities of refuge hold them in tension, always creating space for God's mercy and God's refuge. It's who God is. Refuge orders the life of the people of God as they reach this point in their journey. It embeds their life in the story of God's living, active presence, and it connects their life to the very character of God. And so, here's the question for me. What is, what is it for us to have refuge imprinted into our life? Let me make it more personal. What is it for you, the Pine Tree Church, to have refuge imprinted into the very fabric of your life as the people of God? Not someone else, not some other organization or entity, for your common life as God's people in 2016 and forward, by God's good grace, what does it mean for you to be a people of refuge? I've taught um, at uh, ACU for 15 years in 
areas I've taught in are um, several different areas related to Bible and ministry. One of the courses that I've taught at really all levels is uh, the course in Christian worship. The history, the theology, the practice of worship among the people of God, the followers of Jesus. And one of the interesting things from the history of Christian worship has to do with not only how the practices that we engage in connect us to the story of God and the character of God and form us as a people who behave a certain way, but also how the places in which we worship form us as well. Uh, Stay with me, I know. The guest preachers are always long-winded. I hate that. But back when they, there were instructions about the tabernacle and then the temple, there were very specific instructions about how the place was to be built and arranged. And it wasn't random again. It had meaning. It was to remind us of some things. It's why we gather around the table every Sunday, right? One of the things that I, I did not know that I learned along the way was that in many places of Christian worship, the, the door to the building is painted red. Anybody ever notice this about some churches in some places, particularly if you've traveled in Europe and that the door is painted red? And there's a reason for that. It's because the red door was to denote that that place was a place of sanctuary. And in times of great conflict, In times of war, anyone could find sanctuary through the red door. Here's a picture of one. The red door. So, last thing I want to do very quickly, we're going to do this very quickly, I promise, is to think about this. I wonder if we could name the red doors before us. In Joshua 20, there are six cities of refuge. I'm going to quickly name six red doors, places of refuge. All right? Here we go. Red door number one. The places where we worship. That's where we begin. Do people in this community, those traveling through, those who've lived here for a long time, understand that to come near to the Pine Tree Church is to enter into a place of deep refuge where people, their first move is going to be to throw some Oreo cookies and then we're going to kneel right there with you and we're going to pull whatever protection over you we can find to pull over you and we're going to pray for God's mercy with you that this place where God's people worship whether it's for people who are new to you or some people who've been a part of this congregation for a long time, that this is a safe place, a safe harbor of refuge. We pray, let it be so. Right? I wonder if another red door might also be the places where we live, in the neighborhoods where we live. Hey, wouldn't it be amazing if people, when they came to, to think about who Christians are, they don't just say, oh yeah, I see them get up on Sunday morning and they go off to church and back. But they think, you know what? The first thing I think about about those people is 
the place where they live, their home, their house, their backyard, is a place of refuge in our neighborhood. Man, that's a project. God, work to form us as a people who see our homes as places of refuge where we will welcome people in and the first thing we'll do is to gather around them. They will know that they are loved wherever they are. We will cover them in prayer. We will sit with them. I told you I'd move quickly, so I'm going to try and honor that. What about the places where we work? Thinking a lot these days about how we form people who understand that their work is not isolated from their life of faith. And I don't just mean whether I can set a Bible on my desk at work. I mean how I go about my work in relationship to other people. I mean the very work that I do. Is it a a space in which God's refuge and God's grace is emanating? Can we begin to think about one of the red doors in our lives being the place where we work? Which leads me to... Um, well, actually, I want to say one other thing about this. We're heading back to school soon. Any teachers in the congregation? I suspect it. I was with, um, in Dallas, there is a, a, a school system that I was privileged on Friday to be at their convocation. They're opening uh, training for all of their teachers. 30-something schools, they serve 15,000 kids. They're thinking about their work as educators. Heard from Rosalind Wiseman. She is um, the one who wrote the book, Queen Bee and Wannabes. Anyone heard that one? That book? Anybody? Okay, maybe this. From that book, they made a movie. It was called Mean Girls. Anybody heard of that one? Yeah. All of her work is in about how learning... Um, can only take place when we attend to all of that stuff that's happening in the lives of kids, social, emotional stuff. Hey, those of you who are educators, what if your place of work, the classrooms where you taught, the, the school hallways where you were, became for those who are wounded and very fragile places of refuge? Okay, I want to say more, but I'm already long. And so, uh, I want to talk about um, people who should be welcome um, into places of refuge. And I think children are among the most vulnerable. I think children and the elderly are those who the people of God should be um, embracing. I want to say that it should be the poor among us who understand that the church is a place of refuge. I'll go a step further and say that if the church loses its ability to welcome and receive the poor as one of its primary tasks in a community, it's lost its soul. This is so deeply connected to the heart of God, God's desire for the poor. And when God gives instruction about this, He always says, because you yourselves were poor. We provide refuge. It orders our life for the poor among us. And then finally, for the most broken among us. 
A bruised reed I will not break. A smoldering wick I will not snuff out. Jesus comes for the broken and the downhearted, and we should be active about receiving those who are most broken in our midst. Um, Look, the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge. And today the Spirit says to the churches, the Spirit says to the church at Pine Tree, tell the people of God to designate the places of worship. May it be so among you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. Would you help us to remember again the deep longing within our own hearts for for refuge and rest in you. And may that deep longing and the grace you have given us in providing refuge turn us out to be people of welcome and refuge. Make this a sanctuary place where your peace is known, where your healing occurs where your mercy and forgiveness are abundant. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand.